Hi, Mage fans. This is Terry Robinson with Mage the Podcast. And before we start today's interview, I have some announcements. First, Tales from Dreaming Spires is a RPG event that is being run in Oxford in the United Kingdom next weekend. That is Saturday, January 18th. And one of the events that will be featured there is a technocracy game. And I quote, Tales from Dreaming Spires, Oxford, England, will be hosting a foray into the world of darkness from the normally adversarial point of view of the technocracy, a group of enlightened individuals whose purpose as a collective is to hold back the darkness, the supernatural, and the bizarre to give humanity a chance to elevate themselves within the shared paradigm of science. An emergent threat in Oxford brings together a team from across the five conventions of the technocracy to confront the threat and make sure that the normal service of the technocracy can be resumed for humanity. More information is available at facebook.com slash Tales from Dreaming Spires or search Tales from Dreaming Spires on Eventbrite. Additionally, it's going to be in our show notes. Announcement two. Thank you to everyone who bought Ascension's Landscape. That's my new book on the Storyteller Vault. I moved 230 copies in the first week when it was pay what you want. And thank you so much for those of you who made donations. It is now at its $4.99 normal price. It's my book on the metaphysical setting of Mage and tweaks that storytellers can make. Speaking of Storyteller Vault content, soon to be past guest of the show, Charlie Cantrell of Radio Free Arcadia has released an interesting book. It's called Kiths of Arcadia. And it is a outline of a bunch of new kiths from the old Arcadia card game from the 90s. It's a pretty good NPC source, and kiths are the different type of characters you can be in Changeling the Dreaming. It's pretty neat. And finally, Paradigm Magazine by Josh Heath and Charles Siegel is still looking for submissions. This is a mage magazine that is going to include rules, fiction, art, any sort of community submission that someone could add to their game. If you have a submission, contact them at info at hlgcon.com. This has been the Mage the Podcast Community Spotlight. If you're running a game that you'd like other people to know about, especially if it's online or at a convention, drop us a line, magethepodcast at gmail.com. If you have a new publication for the Storyteller Vault that you'd like people to know about, drop us a line, magethepodcast at gmail.com. Or send a message to me directly on our Discord server. Information is on our webpage. Finally, one note about today's episode. There was an interruption during recording, and we wound up repeating ourselves a little bit, and I couldn't find a good way to cut it out. So if it sounds like Joel's repeating himself, that is my fault. On with the show. Hi, Mage of the Podcast fans. This is your host, Terry Robinson. And today, my guest is Joel Cotton. Joel is a storyteller and White Wolf gaming enthusiast who has what I can only describe as an encyclopedic knowledge of Mummy the Resurrection, as well as the precursor Mummy Mummy supplements. We are going to talk Mage Mummy the Resurrection crossover somewhat narrowly with a little bit of background information and talk about how you can introduce mummies into your chronicle. Joel, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. So, precursor questions. When did you first get into tabletop role-playing? That was a long time ago. Several incarnations ago? (laughs) Yeah, where I played a game called Call of Cthulhu and learned that humans were the worst monsters in the world. Was there anything in particular that stuck with you besides that lesson from your time with the Cthulhuites? Oh, just a good deep sense of horror, trepidation, terror, uh, and how to really kind of plan it all out as a plot. It seems like going from Call of Cthulhu to World of Darkness is like the one case where you're like, oh, World of Darkness, a nice light system that we can all have have some fun with. Yeah, after a couple of years of uh, Call of Cthulhu, then uh, I sat down at a table My friend pulled out this weird book with a claw mark on it, and we played our first game of Werewolf the Apocalypse. What what edition of Werewolf would that have been? 
I believe that was second edition because the cover was totally ripped up and I was wondering why he did that to his book at first, but... <laughs> Apparently there is a bit of White Wolf lore that the distributor for that had that as a problem that people were returning copies of the book for having torn fronts, not realizing that it was an aesthetic choice. And I, I can kind of understand that. After that, I just fell in love with the world of the darkness. And uh, soon after, a very short campaign of Werewolf, where a lot of anger and catharsis of ripping things apart happened, uh, we moved to Vampire, and we played that for many years afterwards. So how did you get from that to Mage and or Mummy? Well, after that, I mean, those were the early years, so I just kind of followed the progression of things as they came out. Uh, I jumped on the bandwagon with Changeling full-on and just bought everything out from there in a floral pattern. So I just started to grab up Mage and fell in love with that game. And then I found this little weird supplement called Mummy for Vampire, the Masquerade. And I had no idea what this thing was. Picked it up, flipped through it, had some of the strangest but most evocative art I had seen so far. And that was it. I was really head over heels with that game and saw what it could do for people who were playing a mummy. What did you like about it? So, like, what was that first edition mummy kind of like? Uh, considering, I guess, at the point at that point, you had werewolves and vampires kind of as the only playable things, and suddenly they add this third type of supernatural to the mix. Oh, it was very strange compared to what we have these days with resurrection. Back then, you had uh, your body would separate the different spiritual parts upon your death, and your ba would fly out to what we know as the uh, the mage umbral realms to go and gather up energy to jam back into either the ka or the cot so that it could eventually resurrect. And they made that process seem like one that took decades, which if you're in for a good long journey, that what it was designed to do for sure. Oh, was that intended to be role played? Not just a, hey, this is the thing that happens. Yeah, uh, the way they describe it in the book, it's very much like, and you're flying through and you have these adventures, like, go meet uh, Diana. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it was just a lot to uh, take in at that time, especially since we didn't have a very detailed umbra at that point. It was just kind of like shrug your shoulders and go, well, okay, I'll do whatever I want with this. But I think the real draw for me with Mummy was uh, getting into the meta plot, which was the whole family feud. The uh, Cyrus versus Set versus Horus, which turned into a big, big thing, which spiraled a little out of control. Can you explain that family feud for our audience? Now, just as a, as a note, normally when I have a crossover interview, I fake my idiocy. Like when I talk about Changeling or Wraith or something like that, I, am, I, I usually have a passing familiarity with the system. I've probably read the core book or something like that. Mummy, I literally have all the Mummy game books that have ever been released, but I haven't actually read any of them more than like 80 pages. So it is not acting when I say, Joel, please explain this for me. I have no idea what's going on. So, so what's the family feud here, Joel? Oh, the family feud uh, started with what we know as the Egyptian mythology, uh, for all intents and purposes. Essentially, what happened was Cyrus got embraced. A little later on, Set got embraced, but Set became the more powerful vampire, and the two just beat the crap out of each other using mortal pawns along the way until the point where Set became triumphant, ripped his brother apart, and threw him to the winds. Osiris was put into a coffin and was basically put into torpor. 
for a long time. So it took her, uh, Isis, a long time to find him. And then when she did find him, Set showed up and then ripped him apart. And then uh, he tormented Horus and ripped out his eye, which contained a, a vital sparkle of life in him. And uh, he, you know, Set being a bad guy, tormented them. But Isis managed to get away, hunted down all the parts of her husband, went to a farm where uh, Mesta, the the good farmer there volunteered himself for testing the spell of life that worked and then she brought back her husband but he was still a vampire and then she later after having refined it brought back Horus and Horus fought off Set and the rest is history so we have Osiris and Set are siblings and they hate each other who is their dad their their father is what Geb Geb yeah so so Robbie Gat Nut and Geb, and this is Egyptian, so I think there's a lot of incest involved. So Osiris's mm-hmm, yeah. wife is also his sister, who is Isis, correct? Yes. And Isis, we do not get any information that Isis is a supernatural or the progenitor of supernaturals, do we? Is she just a god slash demigod, or does it turn out she's the first were hyena or something uh, like that? It's more like she's the first recorded uh, user of uh, sphere magic, as we okay. know it. So in some tales, the first one is Isis then, and in other tales, the first one is going to be Lilith. And I wouldn't be surprised if in the notion of the fractured cosmology that they're the same person. Yeah, that good theory. Yeah. So (laughs) Osiris and Set are at war. Set initially wins. Osiris is torn asunder, placed into torpor. Do we get a story of how he became a vampire? Uh, Yeah. Strange white alabaster stranger comes to court for over a month and has secret meetings with Osiris. And during that time, on the last night that he leaves, he leaves Osiris strangely wane and hungry for something that's not food. Huh. Yeah, the, the thing about the, the first edition of Mummy is that it really spells out like the jihad and why it's happening in that corner of the world. It's a clarity that you don't see ever again. Because even in the second book of Mummy, they, uh, they really dilute that story and start to kind of obscure certain things. I imagine they do that to make it less straightforward, as seems to always be the way. It seems to be a weird thing in the world of darkness that if things start out vague, they tend to be clarified. And if things start out clear, they tend to be made vague later on. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it kind of makes sense that Osiris would lose. Osiris is fourth generation. Set is notionally third generation. And among vampires, the lower number generally wins, unless you got numbers or exceptional cunning on your side. And this imperfect spell of life is cast. And we get, is that the same spell? of life what is then used to produce those first and second generation mummies or is that somehow changed no that's about right and it's your first and second generation mummies uh start kind of reproducing themselves to fight the good fight against apophis which is the corruption in the world which they see as an actual entity that's rising up and infecting people and making the world just a crummy place to live can we map that directly onto the worm in the metaphysical triad oh, oh. Gosh, I think we can. <laughs> okay, cool. So in, in some places, it's the worm, this this giant annulid gnawing at the corners of creation. In uh, some areas, it's Jorgamund. And in here, it appears to be Apophis. So this goes on for a while, I imagine. Now, from what I understand, mummies are generally considered one of the rarest of the supernaturals. Is that the case? Like in first, yes. in first edition, there was a finite number of them or something. There was like, oh, there was the 38 or something like that. Is that the case? Uh, or? They got up to 42. 42. Kind of symbiotic with the judges of Ma'at, yeah. Okay, so we have 
these mummies, they are fighting the agents of Apophis. Are they doing something similar? Or is there a bad mummy spell? Or are they just using a different spell of life? Or is it the same spell of life, but passed, uh, uh, but cast on bad people? Or do you brainwash a mummy? What do their enemies... Is it just... Are there specific bad mummies? Or is it just generic servants of uh, the worm? As time went on in the war between Horus, uh, the Avenger of his father and uh, set went on throughout the decades which turned into millennia they slowly accumulated their their cohorts their other mummies which he started to call his shemsu haru basically his uh, his loyal homeboys and they all became also part of the siren league which was something that was more modern days that he put together but some of the mummies that they created down through the years became disinterested in this family squabble and some of them didn't see the metaphysical underpinnings that they were fighting for. And so some of them drifted away and some joined other factions or made their own faction. And then the spell of life, which had been sought by uh, Set due to its power and utility, eventually got into his hands. And he created seven Bane mummies, which was uh, basically the corrupted ritual that allowed him to take people and instead of creating them into wonderful heroic warriors for Horus turned them into horrible mutated creatures that were uh, almost like different faces of the worm or Apophis. So for, for first and second generation mummies, they are kind of just brought back to life. Do they have a second aspect to them, which is pretty common in World of Darkness games, like a vampire is a beast, a mage has an avatar, a wraith has its shadow, and so on. Is a mummy just someone who's been brought back, or are they now something more? Oh, there's something more. They have been pulled from the brink of death, and they have been empowered with the spell of life, which grants them a kind of higher-powered hedge magic known as Hakao. And the Hakao are powerful paths to power that uh, magic, you know, that allow them to perform basically minor miracles. As the additions go, these uh, Hakao get more powerful and more flashy. But for the most part, in first and second edition, you're looking at more of a utilitarian toolbox that they can dip into to aid their fight against Apophis. So uh, mummies are seemingly a rare case of what appear to be good guys with a well-defined foe that in the form of the Bane mummies, they can possibly overcome. How did this get jammed into Vampire? Oh, I think it's uh, the whole jihad angle with Set, very much tying it in with Osiris Set down the line, and they basically plopped it into the lap of Horus and said, here you go, you take this fight to Set, I'm out. Because Osiris then became god of the underworld for his Egyptian people and sat in a minty, well, first in Neterkatet, which is the Shadowlands of Egypt. But after a while, things got kind of sketchy there, so they had to move deeper into Duat. And he set up shop there in a city that had uh, already been basically prepared for them, though uh, no builder's hand was apparent in its creation. And so he sat on a throne that was already made for him, and he ruled over the rest of his people and guiding them from the Shadowlands. And he would often send visions and what have you to the Cult of Isis, which were those hedge mages for the most part, although every now and again they would have a true mage pop up in their ranks that would not only be custodian of the Spell of Life, but also aid the mummies in their uh, millennia-old battle. This is Horus who is sitting on that throne, or Osiris? Osiris. Okay, so is it safe to say that Osiris is kind of like the Charon for the Dark Kingdom of Sand, or is it a fundamentally different relationship? 
Uh, it's, it's a different relationship because they have Anubis as their main ferryman who takes souls back and forth who are specifically Egyptian. Osiris is basically a, um, a death lord for all intents and purposes. Mm. So let's define some of those terms. In Wraithy Oblivion, when someone dies who has a fair amount of emotional work still left in their life or unfinished business or what have you, instead of either going to Oblivion or going to Transcendence or just being shoved back into the cycle of rebirth, that person may wind up in the Shadowlands. That could either be the penumbra of the underworld, they will mm -hmm. be reaped in some way, they will be introduced to the ways in general, of Stygia or Stygia, which is the Dark Kingdom of Iron, which represents the place where most Western dead are going to go. There are a number of other Dark Kingdoms, of which the Yellow Springs for the dead of East Asia or the Swar, the dead of South Asia, are probably the largest simply out of number. So for the, the Egyptian dead, you have the Dark Kingdom of Sand, and that is ruled over by, you just said it, Osiris. <laughs> Thank you. That is ruled over by Osiris with their key ferryman being Anubis, you said. Yes. I think I am following. This is going to have some pretty impressive show notes. So if you audience <laughs> member are having difficulty with this, the collected cliff notes I put together or spark notes to be up with all the cool kids today will help you keep track. And this, the Cult of Isis was actually outlined, I think, in Sorcerer Revised. So for, for people looking for a mage tie-in there for hedge magic, that is very much in there. So that brings us up to the state of affairs until about when? The Sixth Great Maelstrom. What was the Sixth Great Maelstrom? Oh, that was all that craziness with that meta plot where uh, some ancient vampire woke up, some spirit nukes were dropped, and uh, they called it a day. This is something I have particularly strong feelings on. To destroy... This was the, the Ravnos Antediluvian that was mm -hmm. woken due to all of the descendants of the Ravnos Antediluvian were engaged in war with the, the kindred of the East. They have this giant war. There's mass embraces going on to try and get new members to fight in this war. The Ravnos Antediluvian wakes up, I think, Monday, June 28th to Sunday, July 4th, 1999. <laughs> so remember, <laughs> if you're hearing this episode in or around that time, Please remember that that day 20 years ago and go kill an antediluvian. <laughs> That's how I plan on, on celebrating. So well, get yours uh, quick. They're running out. Uh-huh. So the ravenous antediluvian, Zepathasora, wakes up and a whole bunch of other things happen at roughly the same time. The Eye of the Worm, the Red Star, suddenly becomes visible. In an attempt to kill it, the technocracy drops a bunch of neutron bombs on this entity that is also waging war against a whole bunch of KOE uh, bodhisattvas. Um, I guess that's the, the Kindred of the East version of an oracle is kind of the closest thing I can think of to compare it. So the technocracy starts by bringing up orbital mirrors to focus the power of the sun. They call on a giant storm, they being the bodhisattvas, to try and stop the antediluvian. Eventually, the technocracy employs magical neutron bombs. I like the, the phrase magical neutron <laughs> bomb. And thanks to Fallen Tower Las Vegas, we have uh, statistics for nuclear devices. They do 10 dice of non-soakable aggravated damage. Which, not gonna lie, not enough in my opinion, but <laughs> that's just no, me. Should take out most things. <laughs> yeah. So the sixth great maelstrom is then set off. Yeah. Magical by... neutron bombs apparently are not good for your environment. 
yep. spiritual or otherwise. So Xerxes Jones, a void engineer, prepares his greatest experiment of detonating a second relic nuclear device in the mouth of oblivion. Yep, trying to figure out what's going to happen. Where at the same time, the bomb is dropped on the, the relic nuclear device is dropped on the city of Enoch. So we have magical nukes that are happening on this side of reality. We have spirit nukes that are going off in the underworld. And um, so from what I understand, these blasts blew some dust off some areas of the underworld that we hadn't seen in a while. And and what what happens out of that in terms of mummy continuity? The Dark Kingdom of Sands gets blasted into oblivion, quite literally. And all of the spirits there get torn asunder until there's but... Tim Ock running around, which is partial souls. Osiris rises up in the midst of this terrible storm, uses what most consider the last of his power, sends out visions to the cult of Isis saying, hang on, you're about to get some refugees coming in, and then sends the Tim Ock to go find a vessel to go inhabit and bring back so that they can take part of a renewed, completed spell of life that will create the uh, the now third generation of mummies. And then you have, of course, Mummy the Resurrection. Are these broken spirits that are kind of thrown across the shroud, are they the same as the Risen, or are they different? Are these partial no, souls? they're okay. quite different. Because uh, a Risen really has to make peace with itself, that shadow part of itself, in order to return to its body and rise it up. Where with the, the Timok, they're such a fragmentary spirit, like a flickering candle in the night, that they go out and they search for a guttering fire, some ashes, and they, they land in it. And if that person accepts them, they can rekindle that fire and uh, join with it in kind of a, a symbiosis. So we have in Mage the idea that the awakening generally occurs among the most potentially spiritually powerful of people, usually at a time of stress or under duress. It sounds like if they are if they are finding people that have been thrown upon the ash heap of history, that these uh, that these fragments instead are seeking out maybe people who had made a couple of oopsies, almost like in Demon, where you have these partial souls. Is that something similar? Like in general, who is now being turned into a mummy? Oh, yeah, I, you're, you're not wrong. Much like in Demon the Fallen, the Timok seeks out uh, somebody who's flawed. These Timok, they're, they're very strong spiritual parts of people. And they seek out people who, if they join with them, they make them stronger and better, taking, hopefully, the place of that weak part of the people. And then that gets into the different types of Timok and what kind of people they look for. So that process of pairing these shards with people who are maybe a little bit morally deficient. Is that our new spell of life then, or is that something fundamentally different? Rephrase the question? I'm not sure. I know at some point we get a new spell of life. What then is that? Because Osiris has been sitting on his throne thinking long and hard over the millennia about what he could do to make things better. Uh, when he stood up and sent the Timok on their way, he sent visions to the cult of Isis about, this is how you can improve the spell of life. This is how you can make it Finally, it's full power, it's full strength, because in the past, the spell of life gave a very weak semblance of life to the mummies, to where they could be mistaken for kindred in many descriptions. So with this new spell of life, uh, it would be a true resurrection, a full life force that would uh, infuse these people, and they would come truly back to an immortal life. 
So what, what I feel like so far is there's now two strands. One, the ability to create new mummies through the new spell of life. And at the same time, you mentioned these spirit shards that are thrown out. Well, it takes two to tango. Because the next part of a, a mummy's life, uh, once the, the Timok has chosen its Nehem Sin, it goes into the Shadowlands, it peeks into their call and says, Hi, how you doing? You want to come back to life? You got something worth living for? And usually, if they say yes, then the Temok will kind of climb into the call with them and shoot them back up to the, the living world. They'll re-inhabit the body, much like zombies did in Hunter the Reckoning around that time as well. And they would do what is known as the Hajj. They would need to try to get back to the lands of faith, where the cult of Isis waited in their places of power, ready to perform the spell of life and complete the process of transformation that would take this person who has crossed the veil of death and turn them into an immortal minor sorcerer. Okay, so we have a person who is on the edge of death. These spirit shards find them in this moment of weakness. They say, hey, uh, round two? And if the person gives the thumbs up, they shoot back across the shroud. They're mortal again in some form, and now they need to, like, bust their hump to get to Egypt or something like that so this other spell can be done so they can be proper new mummies. Correct. Woo! <laughs> and they have, uh, I believe, 70 days to get back, which is the traditional ritual Egyptian observance of death. Oh, that's interesting. Now, when you play mummy, do you generally start at that point? Where it's like, okay, clock's ticking. I like the idea of, okay, you're a mortal character, you're going to awaken, and you have 70 days to do so. Get on it. Uh, do you... uh, oh, and the fun part is is that the, the Temok is mostly in charge, because the, the, the human, the mortal part, is still kind of in shock. So they might feel their memories being rustled for uh, knowledge of the modern day, because you've got this ancient Egyptian spirit, soul shard in you, that's driving you <laughs> to get back to where it needs to be. And it may not know the language. It may not know the culture. And it's just kind of this mindless shambling thing uh, pushing its way through. It can cause a lot of fun for a story. I feel like there's a, a lot, lot of like air travel that could be used in, <laughs> in making this happen. Is that or, or are we talking about people like walking across the Atlantic Ocean like... At the bottom oh, of the sea or something like that. I don't think you can make that trip in 70 days. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, uh, it's more like you, you have them stowing away in uh, cargo holds uh, of, yeah, either airplanes or ships just trying to get across to, to get back to the Holy Lands. Wow, that's amazing. That would be like, okay, you want to awaken as a verbena? Well, guess what? Your avatar is going to get in control and you need to make it to the summer cottage before <laughs> the changing of the wheel of the year. <laughs> get on yeah. it. I, I like the idea, though, of a uh, of a prelude plus having a gun to your head, as it were. You've done this a bit. Does anyone ever fail that? Or is it kind of presumed that you'll do it and it's just well, kind of like a comedy of errors? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of comedy of errors where you just uh, kind of highlight a few moments of the Hajj. As, okay. uh, they, they, you know, come across mortal cargo inspectors or uh, police. You made mention of the Lands of Faith. What geographically is that, or is that like just an idea? I have actually tried to <laughs> map out what is known as the Web of Faith, which is something we'll need to get into in a moment. But these lands of faith start at like the Pass of Gibraltar and go as far as like Afghanistan. 
Okay, so we're looking at the Maghreb, the Levant. Does it include Southern Europe? Is that mentioned at all? Or No, I, I think it kind of skirts. I think as high as it gets is probably about Crete. Okay. And it, it about as south as above sub-Saharan Africa, kind of where I've mapped it out myself. But it, it's always left kind of nebulous. That way you can play within whatever area you need to play in. But we're not going to suddenly find that New York City is part of the web of faith, probably. For, no. <laughs> is this the same web of faith that is mentioned as part of the Ali Batini writings, or is this somehow a different thing? It is the same one. So we now have a tie between the Batin practitioners and this other group. So is is there then any tie between Mount Kaf and Mummy? Not so much as in a physical place, but the idea of unity is very strong between the two. Osiris, when he got done getting everybody out of Duwat before the whole thing just crumbled to boulders and dust, he uh, he rose up and he joined the Web of Faith in power. And it is within the Web of Faith that the what are known as Aminti, the, the new generation of mummies, are strongest. Now, are there still old school mummies uh, tooling around at this time? Or do we do we still have those forty two going through the cycles of reincarnation? Yeah, that's the fun part because yeah, those old guys still are kicking around. The faithful, the Shemsu Haru, they got some visions too from Osiris, and he was like saying, "Here's a ritual suicide you can perform, and it will give you the same benefits as the new spell of life." Some of those mummies were like, no, thank you, and moved out right quick-like because they saw that this was getting kind of fanatical pretty quickly. While Horus and 13 others of his trusted members of the Asyrian League went through with the ritual. And they became what is known as the Imku, which are basically original mummies that now are just like the rest of the uh, new so we now have some mummies that did not go through with that ritual suicide. We had 13 that did and are now both new mummies, but have the benefit of memory of their dozens or hundreds of reincarnation <laughs> cycles, how, however many. And the cool thing is your character from the previous mummy games could be one of the Imku. Oh, interesting. So it gives you a, a, a built-in crossover or something if you wanted to move from, from one to the other, as it were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you can change your game mechanics and join the rest of the game. So we've talked about the unique place in the history and cosmology for the World of Darkness, and we've talked about how they fit into the meta plot. It sounds like this is super dependent on the events of the Week of Nightmares having happened. Is that the case? Do I need, if I want to do this, do I also have to take the Avatar Storm with me? Or do you know of a good workaround to be like, oh, Mummy the Resurrection is super cool, but I'd rather not the Ravnos Antideluvian having been killed by spirit nukes? Yeah, I mean, it is super tied into the Week of Nightmares, but if you really like the game and you want to just like kind of divorce it of that event, you can probably just make it something like the next Maelstrom that comes along, just really focuses on the Dark Kingdom of Sands and uh, away you go with the usual rigmarole that brings resurrection around. So it seems like one of those things where the Week of Nightmares had to have happened, but it but the fallout of it is unrelated. Like, for instance, the the Avatar Storm doesn't necessarily need to be up and blowing for, for, for Mummy to operate or what have you. Or Control doesn't need to have lost contact with the technocracy as a whole. Or Panopticon doesn't need to exist. Or you don't need the Rogue Council. But as long as there was, as long as there was something where suddenly Osiris did this, did this Jimmy John, you can kind of roll forward with it. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a game that seems super tied geographically now to the web of faith. If I am someone who likes mage, why is Mummy the Resurrection now a game I should look at and possibly add to my chronicle? If you're into mage, you've got basically a whole new ray of hope that is entered into your game. The Amenti are meant to be balancers. They're, and since corruption in a world of darkness has gotten way out of hand, they're there to pick up the fight and put things to right, which means they're getting into other people's business, getting up into others' faces and saying, what's wrong here? Why isn't this right? Let's fix this. They're very proactive. And when you have uh, all of eternity stretching out before you and you're not really afraid to die, then pretty much readying to do anything it takes. This is another faction of quote-unquote good guys, as it were, that if my if my chronicle is about people taking on the Nefandi or taking on the excesses of the technocracy or what have you, this is now a reasonably potent potential ally that could pop into that. Yeah, uh, especially if you want to take on uh, the Alibatin as uh, kind of your main focus for Mage in the area. Since they've been custodians of the Web of Faith, this big change, all these people starting to swarm around their places of power after the technocracy apparently knocked down or taken over quite a bit of it would be kind of surprising because here comes these cults of Osiris and Horus as they try to move in and take over and they're actually doing it. So on one end, we have a whole bunch of hedge wizards and there's nothing to say that the cult of Osiris, for instance, does not exist in the United States or what have you, does not have branches or, or groups that are active in wherever your chronicle is taking place, or is the cult of Isis geographically bound? Uh, no, the cult of Isis over the millennia had to really hit a diaspora moment, otherwise they would have been kind of scrubbed out. So you can find members of the cult just about anywhere in the world, but they are more highly centered around the lands of faith, which doesn't mean that the mummies, they're very broad of focus also, so... They know that trouble is not just in the Middle East. It's just where they have the most ability to gain power, and that's where a lot of their social bases are. You could bring in a minty, a lone one, or perhaps a group of them who've uh, come out of the, the lands of faith to try to hunt down something that's big and nasty and giving some people problems like marauders or nefandi or anything else uh, that's spiritually corrosive. And it also sounds like mummies kind of have their own baked-in support structure, as it were, in the form of these cults. So it is one of those things where some night folk just kind of pop into existence and are kind of fending for themselves. But this, there, there is a culture that has been handed down. There are groups of mortals that are very much intent on on seeing these entities achieve and do what, they're, what, they, what they need to do, as it were. Are mummies, you mentioned that they are most potent within the web of, web of faith. When are they going to leave it? So if I want my characters to encounter a mummy in New York City or Hong Kong or some other area, what is a good way for that to happen? Probably your best way uh, is to bring in the Aseta, which is a faction of the Amenti that gathered together around the idea of, hey, Osiris's body parts are still out there. I bet if we can get them together, we can bring them back to life. So the Aseta goes out across the world looking for these parts of Osiris, which have turned into different relics and have probably been scattered across the world at this point in the modern age. So you could definitely have your, your mages encounter them as they look at this talisman going, hmm, I want to get a hold of this. And then this other guy comes out of nowhere and says, oh, hey, that's awesome. I should have that to bring back my dead god. So it is very much that you could have a globe-trotting adventure or characters run into entities trying to pick up these things. Now, is it quite literally a body part? 
Or do we have any examples of what these things actually look like that you can give our audience as an example? They don't really give you uh, good, clear indications of what they look like these days. Although the the one kind of solid example they do give is probably the Rock of the Kaaba in Mecca. Oh, interesting. That's a pretty bold statement. That... <laughs> yeah, they think it's the uh, the heart of Osiris. Oh wow, that's a that's a pretty fast way to piss off several billion people if they ever wanted oh. to go go after that. <laughs> but at the same time, as a storyteller, if I want to create this mystical artifact, that it would make sense, for instance, that children of Set from Vampire or the, the children of Osiris or what have you would be trying mm. to also pursue these at the same time to keep Osiris good and dead. So if you already have existing vampire antagonists followers of set but yeah pardon me yes the followers of set now the ministry the children of osiris if those are already extant enemies this is a a pretty good way for you as a storyteller to help put a thumb on the scale to be like oh by the way there are these other entities here that that may be able to to help you along and since reality you know especially from a mage point of view is so uh flexible these things could have changed or mutated over time just because of the the pure power that's coursing through them. So instead of just body parts, they could look like just about anything. Whatever would suit your story. So it sounds like Mummy has a remarkably upbeat theme compared to all of the other game lines. What would you consider to be the the theme and mood of Mummy? Oh, uh, even the book gives you several, several different types of themes. Um, All of them have kind of this grain of hope that runs through them like they are the new thing that's here to bring that ray of humanity to things that haven't seen the light of day in millennia so you've got definitely themes of hope conflict and humanity because they definitely work very closely on that scale of day-to-day human life they're just as alive and almost as mortal as the next guy needing to breathe eat all that good stuff so this came out in the year of the Scarab, 2001. It was the, the, the flagship line there. And we also got Lost Paths, Taftani, and the Ali Batini. If you are interested in jamming a mummy in for a storyteller, what text do I need to get? Uh, you're going to want uh, the Mummy, the Resurrection main book, which outlines in full the history of the Amenti from the days of ancient times to your modern day era where they're coming back struggling to gain a footholds in places where evil has nested for thousands of years and if you really want to expand that i would say go and get uh, the lost paths with the Taftani and the Alabadan. Neat. You've been doing Mummy for a while. You've been doing Mage for a while. What are some of the stories that you told besides this globetrotting artifact quest that you think someone who's like, oh, these sound super neat. How do I actually use the darn things? <laughs> what is your initial recommendation for maybe a one-shot or maybe a few story or a few session story that you think a, a new storyteller to, to Mummy can pick up on? Well, the great flexibility of Mummy is that it can cross over with so many of the other game lines of World of Darkness. So if you want a good, heavy, hard one-shot, throw them in with some shapeshifters, some silent striders, or some Macole, maybe even a Bubasti or two. Just go hit some temples of Sedites hard. <laughs> and you're, you've got a game for a night, for sure. If you're looking at uh, a longer, deeper chronicle, I, I think a lot of the events that have happened in the Middle East, like the Arab Spring, are, are really good backdrops for uh, the Amenti as they try to uh, work their way into mortal society and try to help bolster them and give them their own identity and freedom from oppression, trying to fight Apophis on more than just the 
literal manifest level, but also ideology and uh, spiritually. So this is interesting in that it is a case where you, it is very easy to take the political events of the world and to jam them into your world of darkness, as opposed to maybe some other lines that have had mixed results in doing that. Is there ever internal disagreement among mummies on what to do? Are they generally on the same page? Are there any mummy civil wars that have happened? I don't know about civil wars, but there are definitely some different ideas among them where you got some who want to bring Osiris back. Others think that's kind of a waste of time when they should be joining Horus in his crusade against Set and uh, taking out what he sees as the biggest avatar of Apophis. But then there's others who see a bigger, broader scope and they want to do such grandiose things as expand the web of faith beyond its borders now. So, yeah, they're like trying to push for New York. When would my characters possibly encounter a mummy or a mummy-like entity as an antagonist? Ooh, I think misunderstandings and territory are probably good places to bring in a mummy as an antagonist. Most understandings occurring over, like, who should be in charge of a place in the, uh, the web of faith. You could have a cabal of mages coming in and saying, oh, this place is rich with uh, quintessence. We need to shepherd this and marshal its forces so we can use it against the technocracy who are like over in that other town over there with their pipelines and their their badness. And here comes uh, the Amenti going, oh, no, 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 no. Shoo, 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 shoo. This is not your place anymore. A nice big fight can happen there. Are those Bane mummies still up and acting around? Are there still bad mummies? Like, are there are there nefundic mummies of any sort? Oh, yeah, the Bane mummies. They are definitely out there and still causing trouble. As the resurrection occurs and you get this third crop of uh, Amenti, the, the Bane mummies get a little uppity. They they loose themselves from Set's control and devote themselves almost entirely to the cause of, of Apophis. So you've got these once, you know, you could nudge them and get them to do what you want to do. And these guys are now uh, kind of on their own crusade to spread darkness and corruption across the lands of faith and... Uh, really sticking it to the Amenti before they get too powerful. And uh, to that effect, they have their own little uh, four jars, the Reapers as they're known, whom they go up against uh, or, or send out to confront the Amenti directly to try to reap them and get pieces of their body to put into their jars for the the Reapers uh, can come back four times before they're, they're done with. But if they can get a, a chunk of a mummy, uh, they're good for another go around. Okay, so there are entities out there that are fueled by mummy parts. And in fact, there's a whole cult devoted to eating other people that gets them power. Oh, the Amkot cult. Okay, so in the same way that we have a cult of Isis that is, that is pushing for the good guys, there's equivalent cults that are trying to take advantage of mummy powers for their own benefit. And the Amkot cult has some ancient roots as well, because uh, back in the old days, the thing that really made Osiris a great ruler is he said, hey... No more cannibalism. The Amkot had different plans about that. So through the years, the Amkot has built themselves up within society, the elite, the rich. And so they've got a lot of resources and these uh, certain rituals that they can perform over body parts to give them some minor magical abilities. And they use all of this to go right up against the Amenti and foil their plans right along with the Bane mummies and the Reapers. Now, among the traditions, what groups are most likely to run into or know about or be able to call on a mummy? Good question. 
uh, a lot of the traditions have very well interests that aren't in the area. So I think your your new group of disparates and their their new society they're putting forth. I don't know what you would actually call it. Sorry, the disparate alliance or the disparate alliance. Okay, they're the ones that would probably have the most interaction with your Aminti, as uh, a lot of their interests do lie in that part of the world, but also can be encountered in other places, of course. The Taftani, since they've kind of moved to Dubai, uh, is a great one to have them kind of come in contact with. You've also got the Order of Hermes. They've got some interests with House Shea or Shishat, since they have very uh, deep Egyptian roots. They're always kind of going back to that well to look for more knowledge and power that comes from that same cultural uh, they, they share with the Amenti. You've discussed that they can make a heck of an enemy partially because they are, well, undying. What does that cycle of rebirth look like in terms of game terms? So I am a mummy or I go up against a mummy. I have slain my foe. The next night, do I expect them? Or is it one of those things where it takes months or years? What does that rebirth happen? You made mention earlier to the judges of Ma'at. Does that pop up in here? Yeah, it, it definitely does. So during the Hajj and during the Spell of Life, the, the mummy goes through Duat, heads deeper to confront the judges of Ma'at. And they try and test the souls and they they fuse them together when they see that they are worthy and they send them back and you have your newly formed Aminti. Now, the Aminti are held to such a high standard trying to bring balance around to the world that every time they die... They go back before the judges of Ma'at for judgment again, depending upon what they've done. That's either easier or harder. They have to prove themselves. But none of the MNT can really escape judgment. So I am judged and I am found that I lived a good incarnation or cycle or whatever the heck the term is. Do I just get like plopped back in? Or what is that in terms of a timeline? What does that rebirth or return look like? Oh, that's a pretty great one, because um, in contrast, in your first and second edition, you'd have to uh, play a part of the game where you're out there scraping up that magical energy and get that second back into your body and get it going again. And that process literally took, in its description and game mechanics, somewhere along the lines of months, uh, if not years. With Resurrection, the great thing that they did is, hey, let's make that a background. So the, the power of Resurrection is, is mostly held within the Ba, and they made that into a background. So now you can spend as long as a year dead, or, as you say, be back the next day when you top off at five. Okay, so at five points, it's ta-da! Let's give that let's give that another try. And do the judges of Maat look down upon foolhardiness? One of my favorite characters in Marvel continuity is you have the West Coast Avengers, you have the East Coast Avengers, and then you have the knockoff Great Lakes Avengers, <laughs> which gave us two notable characters, probably more. The best known nowadays is Squirrel Girl. I was a big fan of I think it's Craig Hollis, who is Mister Immortal, and he is noted for his first panel is always him trying something utterly suicidal because within minutes he will be reborn and be returned so do the judges of ma'at look look down upon the uh the suicide raid as the first option <laughs> uh it's mostly storyteller discretion i'm sure the judges allow for a learning curve because uh. <laughs> this sounds like awesome territory for a supercut of figuring out your new mummy powers and blowing yourself up a lot 
Oh, yes. <laughs> that, that, that is definitely a way to go about it. But since Osiris is a benevolent god, he would never force anybody into immortality who doesn't want it. So if you actually commit suicide with the intent of not coming back, you're done being a mummy. Oh, interesting. Well, that got heavy. But also good yeah. to know because it avoids the uh, the Christopher Hitchens scenario of imagine heaven being a uh, a party that is hosted forever that you can't leave and it's being run by your dad. So speaking of mummy powers, so what can a mummy do? The mummy have very physical, tangible things that they like to invest their spells in. So what they have arrayed before them is they have the cow, which are a set of different magical aptitudes. So you've got um, the ancient art of alchemy, where they can make up all sorts of elixirs and salves and use them by drinking them, slapping them on people. Poisoning isn't out of reach. And then you've got, they can create amulets, which are any sort of uh, little knick-knack tags or necklaces, bangles, uh, you know, any sort of thing that we might consider jewelry or tools that they can invest with to give them crazy powers to, like, say, walk on clouds or give them protection against bullets that they would not normally have. Then you have the celestial, where they can call upon the weather, the wind, the stars for some rather dramatic effects. Then they have effigy, where they can create items that can become sort of like homunculi, bringing statues to life, making your tools more efficient. And also at higher levels, I believe you can create relics with it. So you can make items that help assist you in the Shadowlands during your death cycles. Then, of course, you've got necromancy, which helps them cross that border between life and death and helps them put into place errant spirits and or gives them the ability to cross over without dying. And then they have the kind of penultimate power of nomenclature or clature, which is essentially naming, where they can learn the names of things and change them, whether it be a person, a place, or... That seems like, historically, in the world of darkness, power over names has been stupid powerful. What is the the best known one is probably part of Changeling, where with enough successes, you can turn, what, what was the statement, uh, you can turn the White House into a toilet or something like that. Like, we're, we're talking about deep-seated stuff here. That's usually the power where, like, mages are like, I'd give a testicle to have access to that. Is it is it similarly <laughs> broken here? Well, uh, to give you an example, a level five nomenclature is called forgetting the person, where they can just make everybody forget a person. That's uh, That seems powerful. Yeah, uh, pretty good. <laughs> So looking over the powers, they seem a bit more flexible than vampire disciplines and werewolf gifts and such. Maybe not quite as variant as some of the changeling art plus realm stuff, but by no means is this true magic. But this is, it seems like a mummy can be a pretty potent foe or ally. They seem well beyond the will be turned into a lawn chair by a mage category. Yeah, they're not as powerful as a mage, but a well-prepared mummy has a whole hat full of tricks uh, that they can unleash that will ruin just about anybody's day. And they don't have paradox. So here's the important part, though. Are they any better than a mortal, mortal about being stabbed or taking a bullet to the chest? Nope. Okay. The only thing they really got going for them in that way is they heal one health level considered faster. Oh, that's. I mean, that's not bad. Plus the whole undying part. Seems seems pretty useful part. in that regard. And, so uh, I guess they have one other innate power. While they're alive, they have insight. So they can scrutinize a person or a pair of people and determine the emotions that are in play. And then during a, a death cycle, they have kind of the traditional wraith death cycle. Oh, interesting. 
So yeah. uh, is this a game where you wind up using death strategically? Oh, you could. I would love to run a game someday where, you know, the whole strike team is ready to commit uh, horrible suicide in order to get their goal done. This is a game that does kind of travel some territory that none of the other games do. Death is temporary. Hope exists. Preparation is possible. The Middle East is a bit of a shit store, but we're here to kind of clean it up. You've talked uh, lovingly about it, and you said you've played it for quite a number of years. What do you think prevents more people from playing Mummy? It's two books instead of a, a million books, which is kind of less fun to collect. And it hit that kind of key time when the world of darkness was kind of hitting its sunset so a lot of people were kind of either fed up with it from my perspective or they were just kind of putting putting the world of darkness to rest and were kind of turning their back on it so why bring a ray of hope when you have other books like time of judgment and (laughs) gehenna and ascension coming but to you if timing had worked out differently there's no reason this line couldn't have had more books in it like you think there's enough material okay we're starting to see things in the storyteller vault that that flesh out mummy have you looked at any of those do you have thoughts on any of those texts i i haven't seen anything you brought to my attention the one uh the pillars of maat right yeah sebastian freeman that's his attempt at saying hey how do we have mummies without the week of nightmares yeah uh, I, I'm very interested to get a hold of that, but I have not yet gotten into it. Um, but if you want mummies and you're tired of that whole Egyptian thing, we've got some mummies in either South America or we got some uh, mummies over in Asia that you can go and play. Because in the main Mummy the Resurrection book, we also have uh, the Capacocha and the Wutian. Do they have similar stories, or is it one of those things like Kindred of the East versus Vampire where they're really something different, they just kind of look the same? When it comes to the Capacocha, they're similar, but still fairly different because they don't have a completing spirit. They're just uh, ancient souls that were prepared and ready to come back when the family says, we need you. Well, with the Wu Tian, uh, it's more along the lines of an alchemical preparation. You kind of your uh, eight immortals from their mythology. Okay, so you have the, the eight immortals, which are the servants of the celestial bureaucracy, and they're the advisors to the August personage in Jade, which is the closest the world of darkness gets to directly saying God, like outside of demon. Like it's the closest <laughs> we get to getting like a character sheet for God, the August personage in Jade. So is this, it sounds like this is then, it's an alchemical process. Is this at all like becoming a lich then? Or is there similarly a cycle of rebirth that, that these characters can go through? Once they have uh, everything in balance within them and they take the alchemical preparation, which kills them, they go before you know, the august personage of Jade and he says, yay or nay, if you get that lucky yay, you get to come back and you get the cycles of life and death like the Amenti do. And they probably have their own foes in the form of the Yama Kings or some other aspect of the Chinese celestial bureaucracy bad stuff people. Yeah. In fact, in the Mummy's Player's Guide, when it, which goes far more in-depth into the powers and history of these other mummies, uh, they actually kind of hint that in the Thousand Hells book, the Walker in Hell is one of the Boutien. That is a character in the Kindred of the East supplement who, for whatever reason, is a entity of, of pure being that is able to wander one of the ten uh, one of the uh, ten thousand hells without difficulty, and demons run screaming, and people who are lost are aided by this entity. Yep. 
Uh, does mummy have a morality system of some sort? Yeah, actually. It's kind of the seat of their power. They call it balance, and it's uh, on a 1 to 10 scale, much kind of like your your Chronicles of Darkness would later do with a power stat. So with their power stat, it acts somewhere between uh, true faith and extra willpower. It allows them to resist the powers of mages who would be trying to cast in the area if they can see him they can roll their balance as counter magic which is pretty powerful otherwise um they're able to break addictions and mind control with balance as well okay so among world of darkness creatures that are not mages it seems like mummies also have a pretty hefty pool of counter dice even if you don't choose to use the m20 night folk counter magic system and they and they tie that balance into kind of their morality system, and they do give them very similar to a humanity scale. So the but it's keeping in with uh, balance and harmony as opposed to just being a better person. So it's just taking your time and thinking about things that makes you better at balance as opposed to not doing bad stuff. Because sometimes you got to do bad things to keep the balance. Okay. <laughs> no, no, you need to burn down a few cities if you need to stop Apophis. It's not going to happen itself. So, what are some of the chronicles then that you've run, or cases where you've you've mixed mage together with with mummy? Uh, is that something that's happened? Is that do you have any recommendations for the storyteller that wants to try and do this? Oh, watch out for the way these two things interface. Is a mummy, for instance, obviously a mummy to a mage? Like, is there a is there a sphere dot set that will be like my mummy radar has been activated? Yeah, uh, you you put your prime and your <laughs> your life <laughs> or time together. Uh, you're gonna see that these guys are, are filled with a magical power, like your sacum, which is the equivalent of quintessence and every single way from that I've read, but also they're timeless. They're immortal and they're just vibrantly pulsing with life. So if you are keen to those uh, slight differences, then yeah, you're going to pick up on a mummy, mummy pretty quick, but otherwise your day-to-day just interaction, they could be anybody else because they come from a modern era and they blend in well. And only maybe some of the strange hiccups that uh, some of the different types of Amenti have uh, would give them away as other. What are those types then? Like, what are the what are the splats among the Amenti? Well, you got the good old Kermenu, which is the Ka portion of the soul that has joined with the person. They're known as Tomb Watchers. The Ka spirit is uh, that part that sticks near the body during a death cycle. Uh, it protects it from those who would want to sacrilege the body. And so their main purpose is to protect their own body. And they... It's a um, special edge to uh, kind of dodge damage as it's coming in. But their liability is that they're a little bit too overprotective. So they're very squeamish about putting themselves in the, into danger. And then you get your Kirihabi, which are known as the scroll bearers. They were the Ba. Uh, and the Ba spirit is the part of the Egyptian soul that went out and it traveled and it gathered knowledge and it helped out Osiris and it went into the other parts of the Shadowlands to learn things. Its purpose for the most part, is a healing purpose. It can, uh, the, the Kiri Habi are known as great healers uh, with a touch, but they're a little slow. Their liability kind of hampers their speed in reacting to things. Then you've got the Mesectet, also known as the Night Sons. They were the, the Sahu uh, part of the soul, which said, Goodbye, suckers. I'm going to heaven, to Aru. And they hung out with uh, the other pantheon of the gods. And not much was known about what they do. But when they come back, they have a bit of uh, an oracular 
ability so they can kind of re-roll some roles as if they could see the future and know which path to take. Unfortunately, they're tied to the sun, so their ability to function, their liability, uh, puts them at a disadvantage during the night. You've got okay. the, uh, the Sakmu, also known as the Spirit Scepters. That is, the Sakmu is the kind of creative aura that surrounds the spirits. It's very nebulous in its description uh, for the most part. But it is what feeds imagination and creativity uh, when it comes to the resurrection, uh, Amenti. Um, so they have a greater facility at creating, um, but they're very noticeable that, that it's a very shiny part of the soul that they are. So they're not the ones that you want for stealth. Then you have uh, the Sefekhai, also known as the unbandaged ones. They're the dark, animalistic, primal part of the soul. You could almost call it the beast. Except it's not so blood-fueled as it is for vampires. They're tough, and they get kind of scarred up through their uh, resurrection to kind of release some of that darkness to help balance out the Amenti. So they have, they have a bit more dice when it comes to soaking things on a mechanical side, but they are just kind of angry so they have some uh social negativity when it comes to dealing with others unless they uh, get to know you and then your last splat is the ujasin also known as the judged ones they're the unique case where the the temok when it landed and said hey let's go and you get through the hajj and you go before the judges and you're getting your final judgment for the spell of life the judges look at you and go mm, that's not enough they're too dark and so they kind of squish the tamak. They thin it out to where you lose the personality of that soul, that ancient Egyptian part of you that all the other Amenti have and kind of talk to them as like a, a conscience in their head. The Ujasin don't have this. They are just themselves, the modern person. But because it leaves them kind of fractured, they're able to take in Sekum from anywhere. But anytime they use Sekum, it hurts them on a physical level taking damage with every point that they use. Are there any orphan mummies or anything like that? Or is this a case where every mummy has to be one of these if they've received this new spell of life? Yeah, for the Egyptian ones, definitely. Yeah, so okay. You're one of these or nothing at all. Okay. I think the Ujasin were meant to kind of cover the areas where oh, you want to be something a little different or a little more unique. Try one of these guys. So we've we've talked about the cosmology, we've talked about the plot, we've talked about the mechanics of it. Is there anything else that you think a storyteller or someone who who finds this curious should know before they decide to to dive headstrong into it? Well, even Mummy the Resurrection wasn't a full core book. So you still needed one of your other main books in order to make characters for it. So I would definitely suggest Mage, uh, just because a lot of the... Uh, the magical confluences, uh, a lot of the ideas of the lands of faith really jive with them. So you might want to grab that and see how you can kind of blend the two. Uh, definitely meeting a mage flying on a carpet through the desert is kind of an amazing moment for Nementi who's uh, looking for a body part through the sands. Noted. And it sounds like from the description of things, mummies probably do not count as witnesses for the purposes of vulgar magic. Oh, no. They are one of the beautiful supernatural creatures of the world okay excellent well, 
And their cosmology really lends towards a, a lot of different World of Darkness games. You can mix them with shapeshifters, like I said before, with Silent Striders. They have a, a very good, strong fight against uh, Sedites there. Uh, with the mages, you've got the Alibatini, who share the same concerns about the Web of Faith. With vampires, obviously, that's a huge crossover moment. Any coterie who's having some problems with followers of Set, they're a good one to go to to get an edge up on them. It sounds like, though, Wraiths would be super bitter at these guys. Like They're like, that's hacking. They come, they go, they never yeah. stay. Yeah, Wraith, Wraith would probably be also a really good one because they dip into that world a lot. So perhaps Wraith is, is the one you want to grab for sure. If you, listener, have thoughts about Mummy the Resurrection and a particularly good or a particularly bad experience, give us an email at matesthepodcast at gmail.com. If this is your first episode or you're just listening online, give us a subscribe and follow our podcast and get all of our future episodes from the podcatcher of your choice. We're also available directly on Spotify as well as through anchor.fm. We're also on iTunes where if you leave us a review, that would be awfully swell of you. Joel, thank you so much for your time and happy role-playing. Oh, thank you. You too. Terry out.